0: This is from Hebrews 11, verses 29 through 40. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat.
1: Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there's God's very word. What Maven just read is God's word. We should ask that he would teach us. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you have not left us alone um, to make sense out of life on our own. Lord, life is glorious and life is unbelievably difficult. We thank you for these words from the author of Hebrews and pray that you would teach us through them. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Jeff Wilkins and I'm one of the pastors here along with Mitchell Carter and welcome. We're really, really thankful to have you with us. We are working our way through the letter of Hebrews and we have slowed down the last four or five weeks as we have kind of walked our way through Hebrews chapter 11. It's the great chapter on faith. And I want to start this morning by asking you a question. What do you think the Lord wants for you this morning? What do you think the Lord wants for you this morning? I think if the author of Hebrews were here, uh, he would say that what the Lord wants for you this morning is an ever-increasing faith. Faith in the promises of God, faith in the person of God, faith that is not just an intellectual ascent, but actually faith that impacts and shapes and transforms and and enables you to endure, but not just to endure, but to actually enjoy the Lord in life. Think about the way that kind of faith would transform the way you speak to your roommate or to your husband or to your wife or to your friends or to your parents or to your siblings. Think about that way, the way that kind of faith would impact and shape your work, whether your work is at home or in the office, or at school. Think about the way that kind of faith would shape the way you play, or the way you worship this morning, or the way you worship tomorrow morning. As we've seen over and over in this chapter, if it's about anything, it is about faith. The author is hammering on us. Faith, believe, faith. Why? Well, to quote a pastor friend of mine, faith is the heartbeat of the Christian life. Without a heartbeat, you were dead. Without faith, there is no spiritual life in you. It's Pretty intense. How, how should faith function in our lives? Well, let me ask you another question: What's going to happen tomorrow morning, sometime between six forty-five and seven a.m.? The sun—it's going to rise. There's there's no doubt in anyone's mind who sits here whether you believe in Jesus or not, you know that the sun is coming up tomorrow, sometime between 6.45 and 7. I know that because I was awake and I watched the sun come up this morning. When you go to bed tonight, you, you're banking on the fact that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. I mean, you're not just banking on it, you're setting your alarm. And, and you've already thought about what tomorrow's going to look like. You've made plans, you've made arrangements. You know that the sun is coming up tomorrow. And so it shapes, not just today, but it shapes what you're thinking about for tomorrow. There is no question, there is no doubt. Well, that's what the Lord wants for you this morning. Except instead of the rising of the sun, the Lord wants you to have faith in him and his promises, that that he is working all things for his glory and for your good, that that he will complete the good work that he has begun in you, That, that he will never leave you or forsake you. The day will come when he will make all things new, that the day will come when you will finally see him face to face and you will be freed from the chains of sin. How, how do you think your tomorrow would be different than your today or even than your yesterday? If God's promises were that certain to you, if God's promises were as certain as the rising of the sun. Well, here's the thing they are. They are. In fact, according to Jesus Christ Himself, they are more certain than the rising of the sun. He says in Mark chapter 13, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. His promises are certain. How would your life look differently tomorrow if you actually believe that? Another question Why is it so hard to believe that? Why? Why do we have such a hard time living our lives today in light of God's promises? Why do we so often live our lives as if today is all there is and today is all there ever will be? Why? Well, it's because we live by sight rather than faith. We see the brokenness, and the struggle and the consequences of sin all around us. And we see the brokenness, the struggle, and the consequences of sin within us. And we are tempted to conclude the sun is not gonna come up tomorrow. Which is why the author of Hebrews writes these words, and particularly these words in this passage. We need to see two things this morning in this passage. The first thing we need to see is this, that a faith that triumphs looks to God's promises in the face of our weaknesses. After mentioning the Israelites' miraculous deliverance from slavery, from centuries of slavery in Egypt At the Red Sea, after recalling our attention to the fact that by faith, the walls of surrounding Jericho came tumbling down, even though the Israelites did nothing more than march around the city seven times, blowing some horns and shouting to the Lord, even after reminding us of God's faithfulness to Rahab, who by faith trusted him rather than the powers and might of the armies of Jericho. The author writes these words, he says, I mean, the the author is, is wanting to encourage us. Now, this list of people and events might seem somewhat random to you and to me, but to the original readers of this letter who were Jewish Christians struggling with their faith because they were suffering for their faith, this list is anything but random. Think about it. What do the six people in verse 32 have in common? God used them, each of them in their weaknesses, to do amazing things. I can't go through them all, um, but think for a minute about Gideon. What do you know about Gideon? When, as recorded in the book of Judges, God comes to Gideon, the Midianites have overthrown and are occupying Israel. Things are so bad that many of the Israelites have abandoned their homes and they have fled to the hills. They're living in caves. In fact, when God finds Gideon, do you know where Gideon is? He is hiding in a wine press. The Midianites have plundered everything. The author of Judges says that that they devoured the produce of the land and that Uh, that they are like locusts in number. Both they and their camels are so many that they cannot be counted. Things look pretty grim. But do you know what God does through Gideon? Through Gideon and 300 Israelite warriors with nothing more than torches, clay pots, and and a shout. He conquered the armies of the Midianites. Or or think about Barak. What do you guys know about Barak? Barak was a judge who, along with Deborah, routs the Canaanite armies who are oppressing Israel, even though the Canaanite armies have iron chariots, which were were like the nuclear uh, weapons of their day. Here's the thing. All six of these individuals mentioned in verse 32 faced almost certain defeat. If they were looking at their circumstances, they would have concluded there is absolutely no chance that we're going to win. And yet God, in his faithfulness to his promises, delivered each of them, each of them, when they were faced, uh, when they faced their adversaries They looked to and they trusted and they rested upon and they acted upon the promises of the Lord by faith and God delivered them. What does that mean for us? Well, it means this. It means that God is not limited by our abilities. And more importantly, God is not limited by our inabilities. He is not dependent upon our strength and he is not dependent or limited by our weaknesses. God's faithfulness to his promises is stronger and more certain than the challenging uh, circumstances we all face. Even when we think that the promises of God seem like nothing more than a pipe dream. But that's not all the mention of these names tell us. If you do your spade work, what you'll discover is that the weakness that each of these people experienced was not only circumstantial, but it was also internal. It was, um, it was spiritual in nature. It was moral. I mean, think about Samson. What do you know about Samson? His life begins with tremendous promise. But if you read about his life, what you discover is that he has got absolutely no regard for the God of Israel. He is promiscuous, he is violent, and he is arrogant. Or Jephthah, he is, he is a very effective military leader. He wins lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he is so unfamiliar with the God of Israel that he treats him like a Canaanite God. He actually vows to sacrifice his daughter to God if he wins a battle. Or think about David. We all know David. Yes, he is a man after God's own heart, but he also got another man's wife pregnant and then had her husband murdered to cover his tracks. And yet, how does the author of Hebrews describe these people? He says they exercised faith. They were commended for their faith and in the end, God delivered them. Now, what what does that tell us? Well, the author is not saying that sin is no big deal. He is not saying that that don't worry about it. Uh, Just think back to his stern and sober warnings in Hebrews chapter 6, in Hebrews chapter 10. So what is the author saying? What the author is saying is that God is faithful to his promises even when we struggle and fail with sin and temptation. And don't you see how incredibly wonderful that news was to the original readers of this letter? And and don't you see how wonderful that is for us? It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that God's grace is sufficient for us, that his power is made perfect in our weaknesses. In the same way that God is not limited by our circumstances, he is also not limited by the fact that we are sinners. And that's really, really good news. Now you say, well, if that's the case, why should, why, should I, why should I struggle with sin? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question for us in a letter to one of his protégés, Titus. He writes this, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In other words, the author of Hebrews is not giving us an excuse to sin, but rather he is comforting us and he is assuring us that God's grace really is more powerful than your sin. Think about how encouraging that was to those who first read this letter. Who were described in chapter 2 as drifting. Who were described, I think, in chapter 4 as being dull of hearing. What the author is saying is that you were never so bad that you were beyond the reach of God's grace. If you find yourself in the riptide of sin and temptation, look to Jesus, that's what the author is saying to us. The author says that these people and others, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforce justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to death. And then he says this, verse 25, women received back their dead. The author is talking about the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. You remember the story of the Shunammite woman or the widow at Zarephath, their sons had died. And God, through these men, raised their sons back to life. The author's trying to encourage us. God is not limited by our weakness, whether circumstantial or internal. And and it doesn't get any better than this. I mean, we say yes and we say amen because we like happy endings. We all like to see things wrapped up with a bow. But as much as we'd like Hebrews 11 to end in verse 35, the first part of it, there's a second part of it, isn't there? The author goes on to say, some were tortured does the author go here? It's because he wants us to know that a faith that triumphs looks to God's promises even when it doesn't look like God is keeping his promises. Beloved, the author is telling us that sometimes those who believe escape the edge of the sword. But he's also saying this, that sometimes those who believe are killed by the sword. Or to put it another way, sometimes faith leads to deliverance and sometimes faith leads to death. Now, why is that important to know? Because if you don't know this, when life gets hard, and it will get hard, you won't know how to make sense of it. If you think that a faith that triumphs always means victory. When it looks like you've lost, you will crash and you will burn. You see, what the author is telling us here is that a faith that triumphs trusts God not only when things are going well, but when things seem to be spiraling out of control. A faith that triumphs, triumphs trusting god when god answers our prayers the way we'd like and also when god doesn't answers our answer our prayers according to the way we'd like think about the people the author describes in verses 35 to 38 after mentioning that some of the women received back their dead by resurrection. The author says this, he says, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, which sounds eerily similar to the experience of some of the believers who first read this letter. And then he goes on to describe believer after believer who was willing to endure savage and severe hardships. Rather than deny their faith, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in the desert and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Here's the thing, a faith that triumphs doesn't always or even most of the time mean that things are going to work the way you or I would expect or like. In fact, Jesus himself says that if we follow him, we are going to suffer. It's not a great way to gain followers. And yet it's very honest. And it's incredibly important to know You must know this. This is why the author goes here. And the question you have to ask is, how how can I have the kind of faith that these people who were described in this passage have? And, And the answer is found in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life, which can also be translated, so that they might rise again to a better resurrection. Beloved, these dear people had been taught and they believed with their very lives that the day would come when God would return and he would make all things new. Now, we hear that phrase and what do we think? We automatically think of Revelation 21 where it, The apostle John tells us that the first heavens and the first earth will pass away and there will be a new heavens and a new earth and there will be no more death and there will be no more suffering and there'll be no more sickness and there'll be no more pain and there'll be no more disease and there'll be no more division. There'll be no more racism. There'll be no more injustice. And then we read these words in verse five. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. We think, oh, this is what John was talking about in Revelation, but here's the thing. What John is describing in Revelation 21 is rooted in the prophecies found throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah 65, we read this Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. No more shall uh, be heard in the new heavens, in the new Jerusalem, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, the dust shall be like the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Now, why why do I tell you that? I'm trying to say that the people the author of Hebrews is describing, these people of whom the world was not worthy Looked forward to, they bet their lives on, and they lived their lives in light of the same resurrection, the same future resurrection that you and I look forward to. What would your life look like if you really believed in a better resurrection? How would your life be different tomorrow at home or at work or at school if you really believed? in a better resurrection in the words of the missionary Jim Elliot he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose beloved these saints of old they believed that God was better than anything this life can give us and that death can never take him away Actually, death can only usher us into his glorious and majestic and unspeakably beautiful presence, which is why the apostle Paul, while sitting chained to a Roman guard in a jail in Philippi, can write these words for me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. Again, how how do you get this? Well, in verses 39 and 40, the author says something that should get our attention. He says, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, what does that mean? It means that we sit in an amazingly privileged position that, that we, we are in a place of privilege that our Old Testament brothers and sisters did not enjoy. They lived with God's promise. Genesis 3.15, they live with the promise of the seed of the woman. Genesis 12, they live with the promise of the seed of Abraham. Isaiah 53, they live with the promise of the suffering servant. Daniel 7, they live with the promise of the coming of the son of man. The Psalms, they live with the promise of a king who would reign from east east to west from north to south and whose dominion would have no end they live with the promise and yet we live with the fulfillment of that promise that all the promises of god find their yes in christ jesus that at the cross our redemption has been accomplished once and for all it is finished that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of the new covenant, the peace with God, access to the Father, the indwelling, sanctifying work of the spirit of the resurrected Christ are really here now. That with him, the believer is raised to newness of life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he or she is a new creation. The old is passed away and the new is come. We don't just have the promises, we have the person. And what that means is that we know how the story ends. We know how the promises are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They had to wait for centuries. We know the end of the story. Do you see the difference that this makes? Jesus endured death and rose to new life. Looking at him, we know what will happen to us because we are united to him. He is described as the first fruits of the harvest. We are part of that harvest. At the same time, we live in this tension between the the, the fulfillment of the promise and the consummation of the promise. We live in between the incarnation of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus and what that means is that we still await the renewal of the creation. We still await the redemption of our bodies. We still await the unveiling of the new heavens and the new earth. And so in our privilege, through this still groaning world, it is inevitable that we too should endure suffering and hardship. And in the face of suffering and hardship, our hope and our comfort comes from fixing our gaze upon Jesus who is the goal and the prize of our ultimate and eternal perfection. In John 11, Jesus says to Martha, Lazarus, her brother, has been laying in a tomb for three days. And Jesus says this, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Beloved, Jesus died so that you could and you would be raised to new life. Jesus died so that you could and you would know this better resurrection. And here's, here's this most amazing thing. It's, it's not all focused on the future. But if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. The the power of the resurrected Christ dwells within you. Because Jesus has conquered death and been raised to life, he is not only able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted as we are yet without sin, but we can with confidence now draw near to the throne of grace. And do you know what we will find? We will find Mercy, and we will find grace to help us in our time of need. I want to believe that. I want to believe that. You want to believe that. Let's ask the Lord that He would increase our faith, that we might be faithful to His promises. Father, thank you for your word, thank you for your promises mostly thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he lived and he died and he rose to new life and he sits at your right hand, ruling and reigning over all creation. Thank you that we have a sure and certain hope that the day will come when you will make all things new. The day will come when you will make us new. And we will no longer be enchained to the struggle with sin. We will no longer be surrounded by sin and death and brokenness, but we will be what you created us to be in the creation, the way you created it to be. Lord, give us faith. Lord, we are so privileged to not just have the promises, but to, to, to have you, the resurrected Christ, by your spirit dwelling within us. Lord, we believe, help us overcome our unbelief. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.